Morning, everybody. I invite you to take your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6, if you have one there in front of you. And we're going to be looking at uh, the Lord's Prayer, verses 9 through 13. Once again, Randy has put this up higher than any six-foot person should do. Um, I was thinking of the song that we just sang, um, and as I've mentioned to you before, over the last four years, I've done a study of fear, and it's striking that one of the, one of the seven reasons that God says we don't need to be afraid is the very thing that song was saying. It was talking about how uh, the Lord surrounds us, even when we feel surrounded by enemies. Uh, Psalm 34 says, the angel of the Lord surrounds those uh, that fear the Lord. Uh, it says in uh, Psalm 3, you're a shield around me. Psalm 125, it says, like the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people. And all those verses were going through my mind as I was listening and participating in the singing this morning with you. We're sur- it may look like we're surrounded, but we're surrounded by you. In Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 and and following, we read this. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray this morning. Lord, we come to you, the God who surrounds us with protection. We come to you as the one that is our shield and our shelter, our protector, And God, we come to you asking that as we reflect on this famous and familiar portion of Scripture that you might lead us into truth that we can walk out with this morning, that we can, as we go through the remainder of our day, leaving our dens or our family rooms or studies or wherever we're watching this morning, that these can be thoughts that we can can build into our lives and to apply to our lives as we seek to be people who, who live out the Lord's Prayer. So guide us and teach us this morning, Father, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. This is the second prayer request that Jesus gives us to pray the last time we looked at it, where his initial prayer request that Jesus says is, pray, hallowed be your name. This one is, your kingdom come, your will be done. We're praying for God's will to be done in our lives and through our lives. Doing the right thing, of course, can at times be costly. Stories told of a man who appeared before St. Peter at the pearly gates, and as he arrived there, he was met with the question, have you ever done anything of particular merit? To which the guy said, well, I, 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 I guess I can think of one thing. Uh, one, on a trip to the Black Hills out in South Dakota, I came upon a gang of high-testosterone bikers who were threatening a young woman. I directed them to leave her alone, but they wouldn't listen, so I approached the largest and most heavily tattooed guy. I smacked him in the head, kicked his bike over, and ripped out his nose ring and threw it on the ground and said to him, now back off or you'll answer to me. St. Peter was impressed. He said, when did this happen? Oh, just a couple of minutes ago. Sometimes doing 
the right thing can be costly. We are challenged in this prayer to pray a challenging prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done. In our last study, we considered the first request, we're to to pray, hallowed be your name. The word hallowed means to set apart or to, to, to be seen as special. The name of God is a expression of all that he is. It is basically, God, may you be seen to be special. May you be seen in your specialness, your spectacularness. To profane, the opposite of hallowing, means to treat as common, to, dis, uh, to be disdainful of God's name, of God's glory. It's a prayer that people of the earth and celestial beings will see God's worthiness to be worshipped. That's what we talked about last Sunday. This morning in this second one, your kingdom come, your will be done. These requests also are related to things about God, that his kingdom would come, that his will would be done. And so I'd like to look at these two things this morning and, and reflect on them together. First of all, we are to pray for his kingdom to come. We are praying for people to embrace the reign of God. And it's praying for his kingdom. Now, the nature of this kingdom is important to understand, and We don't have to go far in our study of the Scripture to find out what he's talking about when he means the kingdom because Matthew chapter 6 is right in the middle of a section of teaching that Jesus is giving in Matthew chapter 5 and 6 and 7 called the Sermon on the Mount. And in it, he is preeminently talking about his kingdom. And he is is presenting to us what this kingdom is that we are to pray would come among us looks like and what it's all about. And it is a kingdom that is not uh, 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 for a national reign. It is not a kingdom like we're praying uh, that, that, that uh, for Israel where they had a theocracy in the time of David. It's not a national prayer whether a particular nation will be uh, reflecting the kingdom of Jesus. It is praying for Jesus' kingdom itself to come among us. And this kingdom is centered on its king. John the Baptist, again in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 3, when he first is, is going in his ministry and just prior to the time, actually in the latter part of chapter 3, he sees Jesus for the first time. But in Matthew chapter 3, he's, he's proclaiming this message. The kingdom of heaven is near. It's, it's just about among us, he's saying. And then a few verses later, he actually sees Jesus and baptizes him at Jesus' request. The kingdom is centered in the king. It sounds like Jesus might be bringing this physical reign to earth then, and, and perhaps, and likely a lot of the Jews got all excited when, when John says, John the Baptist says, the kingdom, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming, it's almost here, it's near. And then he points to Jesus and he says, this is, this is the guy, this is the king, this is the one. But Jesus himself described this kingdom as not being of this world, it is not a kingdom Uh, that will throw off the power of Rome. It is not a nationalistic kingdom. Colossians says it this way, God has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom 
of the son he loves. Jesus said, the kingdom of God is within you. This is a kingdom that exists in our lives. It is a kingdom that we are united with each other by that which is within us. The king lives within our lives. And this kingdom is him living out his life his purposes, his priorities through his people. And in this way, his kingdom infiltrates the world. In Romans, it talks about we are no longer, Colossians also says this, God has rescued you from one kingdom, the dominion of darkness, under the old king, Satan, and you have been brought into a new kingdom with King Jesus who now lives and reigns on the throne of your lives. So what does this, what is this kingdom and what does it look like? Well, again, here in Matthew chapter 5 through 7, he gives a very clear, the most, the most complete explanation of what it looks like, the principles that, that guide it. But he also gives the priorities at the very beginning of his discourse in Matthew chapter 5. And, he, and I'd just like to highlight them. He says, these are the priorities of this kingdom that we're to pray would come. The priorities of the kingdom are called the Beatitudes. The first of those, blessed are the poor in spirit. The, these are, he says that the, the first priority of the kingdom is that they would be people who recognize they are begging poor in spiritual nature. They see their sin. They see they have nothing to commend themselves to God or deserving of his acceptance or merit. They are those who mourn. They mourn their state. They mourn with godly sorrow, their, 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 their lack of, of spiritual uh, righteousness within their own lives. There's the sense we recognize we're begging for. It's all about Jesus. Every day, anything that's good in our lives comes about because of Jesus Third, they are those who are the meek. They have strength under control. Other passages translate this word meek as gentle. They are those who do not assert themselves over others in order to further their own agendas in their own strength. They are those that hunger and thirst for righteousness. They long to live righteously to the glory of God, not in their former unrighteousness and self-serving actions and ambitions, and they long to see righteousness lived out and defended. They're the merciful. They extend mercy to others. They forgive. They forbear with hard people. They look out for those mistreated and those overlooked. The priority of, of the kingdom is they're the pure in heart. And this word pure actually means unmixed. That there are not mixed motives and it's a, it says it's pure in their heart. They're, they're not mixed within. Their motives are, are not self-absorbed, not centered on furthering their own agenda, their own prosperity. But they're genuinely looking out for the glory of God and the betterment of others. They're peacemakers, not necessarily peacekeepers. Peacekeepers are just people that, that try to control the environment to avoid conflict. Peacemakers are proactively seeking peace, even at cost to themselves. There are those that are persecuted as a result of, the, of suffering in thirsting for righteousness, suffering for living with desperateness for Christ, suffering for extending mercy. 
And this counter-cultural picture given here describes a kingdom of people who are humble, merciful, gentle, courageous, righteous-seeking, peace-advancing. And he says, pray that this kingdom will come upon you. Okay, so what does that mean, that we pray your kingdom come? The nature of the coming of the kingdom is actually praying that people would embrace this kingdom. It's a mission prayer. It's praying that individuals will will embrace Jesus as king of their lives. Matthew 18 verse 1 says this, unless you change and become like little children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. That people, we're praying that people will, will, will be humbled and brought to a sense like a child saying, I, I need Christ. I need what he offers in his redemptive work. In Matthew 19, he talks about how difficult it is for a rich person to enter this kingdom. And the reason is because of their own self-sufficiency and a rich man is used to being able to take care of himself, to look out for himself. In Matthew 21, he says, I tell you the truth, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of heaven ahead of you self-righteous Pharisees. Why? Because they sense the need of forgiveness. They sense, the, they sense their own poverty of spirit. They, they mourned for their sin. They saw themselves of needing grace. And what Jesus is saying, pray that people will long to embrace this kingdom which I am offering to them as their king. As the kingdom comes, hearts are being changed by the power of the gospel. To pray for the kingdom to come means that you are praying that Christ's rule will extend over more people. It is the ultimate missionary prayer. And just as was true in Jesus' day and is true on the mission fields of the world today, so it is true in our own mission field here in Burlington, Camden Counties. It is the, is the recognition that the message of the kingdom is embraced as God's people live out its priorities in their own lives. That as we see God's kingdom reflected in our lives Humbly, depending on the Lord, being mercy extenders, being peacemakers, being those hungering after righteousness and justice, humbly extending justice and righteousness, extending mercy and forgiveness, seeking to be peacemakers and serving neighbors and people in need with wholehearted abandon, he says, with that priority, you most enhance the extension of Jesus' kingdom always with the goal that others will embrace the king as savior for their sin and lord of their lives. He says, I want the church to live out, and your prayer for his kingdom to come is that, Lord, let the kingdom be reflected in my life. Let it be reflected in the church, the people of Christ. And then, Lord, as your kingdom comes among us, Cause those that we love to embrace the king, to be drawn, to be a part of this kingdom. God, your kingdom come. Then he prays, says we're to pray a second thing. We're to pray for God's people to do the will of God. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, 
The interesting part of this to me is that little phrase is at, at, at the end. He says, let your will be done on earth in the same way it's done in heaven. So what does that mean? What are we praying for when we pray for God's will to be done here like it's being done there? Well, when Jesus is, is, is offering this prayer to us, he hasn't gone to the cross. He hasn't resurrected. The only people that are, that are in heaven are actually angels. And he's talking about what is going on, the normative practice of heaven, which is revealed to us in lots of Scripture. And that is that angels are continually doing the will of God in the presence of God in heaven in two ways. Number one, they, they fulfill God's will in worship, and they fulfill His will in their works. I believe that's what it's saying to us, that we when we pray, Lord, your will be done on earth, here, just like it is there, it involves both of those aspects in God's people's lives. First of all, that we are expressing graceful worship for all that God ordains. That's exactly what the angels are doing in the book of Revelation throughout the Old Testament. When we get glimpses of heaven, they are worshiping God for his chosen works, his purposes, uh, his plan, redemption. And we are to be praising and worshiping God. It's why 1 Thessalonians says it this way in chapter 5, verse 18. Give thanks in all circumstances. Why? For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. This is his will. If we want to fulfill his will, we are worshiping him, praising him, giving thanks in all things for that which he ordains in our lives. John Wesley, a man mightily used to bring many, many people to Jesus, said it this way, I am no longer my own but thine. This was his prayer. Put me to what you will. Rank me with whom you will. Put me to doing. Put me to suffering. Let me be employed for you or laid aside for you. Let me be full. Let me be empty. Let me have all things or let me have nothing. I freely and heartily yield all things to your approval and disposal. And the commitment I now make on earth, let it be ratified in heaven. He says, I know that if I am really living to your will and living my life to your glory, that I will joyfully embrace whatever you bring. He says, if it's suffering, bring it on. If, if, if it is approval or disapproval, whatever it is, allow me to praise you. In that circumstance, praising God for all he brings into our lives is how one of the ways his will is done. It's how it's done among angels. It's how it's done in our lives. We have some worship songs that express this beautifully, I think. Casting Crowns has the song, Praise Him in the Storm. It goes like this. I was sure by now, God, you would have reached down and wiped our tears away. Stepped in and saved the day, but once again I say, amen. That it's still raining. As the thunder rolls, I barely hear your whisper through the rain. I'm with you as your mercy falls. I raise my hands and praise the God who gives and takes away. And I'll praise you in this storm. And I will lift my hands that you are who you are no matter where I am and every tear I've cried you hold in your hand you've never left my side and though my heart is torn I will praise you 
in this storm. We cannot say that we're really praying for God's will to be done in, in, among us and in us if we are not praising what He chooses for our lives. A number of years ago, I attended a seminar. It was out in Chicago, and it was actually, uh, there were all different denominations. There were people from all different cultures uh, around the world, many missionaries, many nationals from various places. And it was one of the most meaningful worship experiences I've ever been in, just from the variety of people that were there. And I remember, and I had gotten to know a number of the people's stories, so I, I, I knew some of them anyway, and what cost they had experienced to follow Jesus. And we sang the song, I'm, I'm Trading My Sorrows. The song goes like this, and I, I, I have never heard the song sung since that I don't, my mind's eye doesn't take me back to that experience. The words are, I am pressed but not crushed, persecuted, not abandoned. And these words are from 2 Corinthians 4. Struck down but not destroyed, I am blessed beyond the curse, for his promise will endure that his joy is going to be my strength. Though the sorrow may last for the night, his joy comes with the morning. And then this is the part, and, and, and the chorus is simply this. And a lot of the guys were just raising their hands and they're saying, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, yes, Lord, amen. It was so moving to me to just see. I, I knew what some of these guys and, and, and women had experienced. I knew what was going on in their lives and they were saying, God, you're worthy of me saying your will be done. I embrace it. I praise you for it. I worship you for it. If we're really praying that prayer, we are praying, God, I am willing to praise you. I am willing to accept your will being done in my life. It also involves joyful obedience to all that God commands. In the early part of the last century, it was a young man that grew up in New York City. He was a five foot five guy, not that big a man, pretty thin, but a powerful human being. His name was Mickey Cohen. Mickey grew up in the streets of New York City and became a prize fighter. He was a featherweight. He was good enough that he actually fought for the world championship. He lost, but still, world championship. Unfortunately, Mickey Cohen got caught in with the fast life and got into the organized crime and was good. He became a rising lieutenant. He was a hitman. He was involved in a variety of things in New York City, eventually was sent by the families out to Chicago and served under um, both of the Capone brothers, and then eventually was uh, went on his own to L.A. and became a major player in the, the mafia uh, organized crime world of Los Angeles. All of this took place, uh, he had stopped boxing in the mid-1930s. And from the 1930s to the, to the 19, early 1960s, 
He was a rising star, if you will, of the, the mafia crime world. Now he was centered in Los Angeles, but known all over the country. And while he was in Los Angeles, Mickey, I don't know how he actually struck up a relationship with a young guy from the South, taller guy, totally different background, but this guy, a preacher whose name was Billy Graham, had come to L.A. and was doing these, this new kind of meeting called a crusade. And Billy Graham held his famous Los Angeles uh, evangelistic crusade, and to everyone's that knew him, shock, at one of the meetings, Mickey Cohen, with his guys all around him, in front of him, side of him, back of him, just his, to protect him, bodyguards, came forward at one of the meetings. In the aftermath of this, this incredible, seemingly incredible experience of this former mafia boss now becoming a convert to Christianity, people that were trying to come alongside of Mickey began to notice that nothing was changed. He was still involved in all of the activities he was involved in. He was still calling for hits. Uh, they may not have known all that, but he was. And nothing changed. And finally, somebody came alongside of Mickey, and they, they challenged him about it. And they said, Mickey, you can't be doing this lifestyle if you have committed your life to Jesus Christ as your Savior and your Lord. To which Mickey Cohen famously responded, why not? There's Christian football players. There's Christian cowboys. There's Christian politicians. Why can't there be a Christian gangster? Well, there can't be. Because the calling of a disciple of Jesus is to say, Thy will be done. That this is my heart's cry. If Jesus is in us, we pray that Jesus, your will be done in me, and your will be done through me. That Jesus tells us that the essence of being a Christian is that we say, Jesus, you are Savior and you are Lord. It's why C.S. Lewis famously has said, there are actually only two people in the world. Those who in this life say to God, your will be done. Or those to whom God will one day say, your will be done. This is a serious thing for us to reflect on. Because our lives must be reflecting. If we name the name of Jesus, if we say, yeah, I've, I've given my life to Christ and I've received Jesus as my Savior, by God's grace I have experienced forgiveness and redemption. But if Jesus is not Lord... If we are not seeing your will be done as our orientation, either we really need to repent and turn, or it's also very possible that we have never really embraced Jesus Christ as Savior. Because Jesus says, this is the normative prayer. 
of a believer in Jesus Christ. Lord, your name be hallowed. You be shown to be special. God, your kingdom come among us. May the priorities of your kingdom be seen in my life and be lived out through me that others might be drawn to that kingdom and embrace it as well. And, Lord, your will, not my will, your will be done. Let's pray together. Lord, for each of us right now, praying the prayer, your will be done, is going to look different. But I believe the calling upon each of our lives is exactly the same. You're asking for us to wholeheartedly surrender to your Lordship in our lives. Lord, to the places we look at our lives and we do not see the reflection of the Beatitudes, convict us, humble us, and free us then to say, Lord, I'm not seeing your will done in me because this is your will, that I live out these values, these priorities. Lord, take our lives, work through our lives, Accomplish your will in us and through us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Now go in peace to love and serve and enjoy the Lord. Thanks, everybody.